So it was a few years ago, I came into my house, and I walked through my front door, and I saw little shoes and socks and shirts and shorts, underwear, (laughs) strewn all through my front foyer, my doorway, my living room, all through the house back to their rooms. And all I could think was, it's not even winter. Like, it was July. It's not even winter out. Like, this might be permissible if there's snow on the ground and snow boots and towels. You guys have done that before? You know what I'm talking about? But it's July. And all I could think in my mind was, man, where did they learn this stuff? Like, why in the world, the moment my kids break the corridor of my house, they automatically start stripping. Like, they just take off all their clothes and they... Who taught them this? And as I was saying that thought in my mind, I caught my reflection in the mirror adjacent our front door as both my shoes are off and I have my shirt halfway over my own head. And all I could think was, oh, (laughs) rather sheepishly. And I, I say that to say that we like our children have a tendency to mimic what we see. And God loves us. And he gave us his word as a gift to us. The truth is, though, we have a choice. He loved us so much that he didn't demand our love and he didn't demand us to love us back. That's true love. When something that is perfect can create something else in its image and and not demand that creation to love it back and to give the creator do respect, but give them the choice to love him back and to love him with their lives and to listen more to his message for them than culture's message. That, that is true love, and that's the choice that each of us have been given. And so the world is really seen by God in two ways, that they're, we are all children. Paul wrote it like this, that we are either children of God, those who are in Christ, who have accepted the gift of Jesus and been redeemed to him, have his spirit in us, and we yield to his message, or he sees us as what the Bible calls child of wrath, children of wrath, and those that don't have his spirit but really do whatever we desire, and we listen more to culture's message than we do to his. How many of you recognize that it's far easier to say I'm going to yield to him than to do it. How many of you say it's a lot, you know what to do, but it's harder to do that thing and put it in practice? Okay, James 1 said it like this. Be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. In fact, your translation of that text may say this, and I love the way it's said, that the one who looks and sees his own reflection in the mirror, sees his own natural face, as to say he sees his own natural state, the way he or she looks when they're first getting out of bed. Not made up and not fixed, but in its ugliest state. And how many of you in the morning look a little ugly? 
okay? So some say more than just the morning. When we look into the mirror and we see the reflection back at us and we know it needs some work, he's saying those who know it but do nothing about it, that's, this is who I'm talking to. But those who see it are willing to put in the work. These are those who will be blessed in his way. In like, in like manner, Paul admonished Timothy, his, his understudy, to rightly divide the word in 2 Timothy 2.15, to rightly divide the word of truth, which requires more than a casual glance. It cannot, it, it cannot be simply done if we look at the scriptures and we try to take away from the scriptures, but that perception that we take away from the scriptures is colored by our own human preferences and assumptions. See, we have to recognize that when we look into the scriptures, we're, we're not reading it for our sake. How many of you have ever said to yourself or heard a friend say this? That I got nothing out of that Bible study. I got nothing out of that teaching. I went into my own reading time and I got nothing out of it. Anyone? Just, just so I know I'm not alone. Okay? All right? Well, here's the thing. I want to admonish us that we may be reading it wrong. We're not reading it for our own sake. We're not reading it to get something out of it. For us, we're reading it to learn about who he is. We're learning it. We're reading it to learn about his character, his very love, and who he was, and looking into the perfect law like a mirror reflecting who we are not, but who we're to become like. Does it make sense? So we have to be able to look at it like it was intended, and that was a love letter. Much like a schoolgirl receiving a love letter from her secret admirer that's been left in her locker, when she finds it, she runs off and gets away from everyone else and every other distraction, and she pulls out that letter so she can pour over every single word from her admirer. You know what I'm talking about, this picture? Jesus gave us the scriptures to reveal himself so that we would pour over every scripture as if it were his love letter to us, revealing his very character and plan to redeem us to himself and save us from sin and from our own demises ourselves. It is this, but even more than this, it deserves our authority in our lives. Because with his scripture and the truth found therein, there's benefit for us. We are the beneficiaries thereof. We are to peer into it as a mirror and allow it to reflect God's character and his desired character for us, his people, his bride. Simultaneously revealing his, our own sinful or selfish states naturally and be willing to put those aside so we as a church are biblically centered this is one of our core values this is the first of the six that we'll cover and we hold to the scriptures as a pillar as a gift as it was intended to be and we peer into it looking to admonish our entire lives by it and today we're going to look at second timothy three and i want to give you just a little context for what Paul's writing to Timothy in this book and in this chapter. This is often referred to as Paul's last will and testament. Paul's writing a second letter to his disciple Timothy in order to pass his proverbial torch of ministry, if you will. Paul's writing from prison in his very last days to encourage and strengthen his faint-hearted young friend, Timothy, whom is pastoring at Ephesus. Ephesus at this time is the most influential church in all the world, and his Understudy, Timothy has grown weak and tired and weary as a leader himself in trying to lead it. 
Ephesus is the cultural epicenter to the world. As goes Ephesus, as goes the world. It has incredible influence across the globe, but had fallen. It always ran the risk of heretical practices. It always ran that risk by, by way of influential leaders within the body. But lately, at the time of this letter, it had fallen more recently into corrupt theology. And it had established itself as a reputation for spearheading ungodly practices by said leadership who are influencers. So chapter 3, as we're looking at today, specifically is a charge on how we are to, as a, how this church had fallen and um, how it was being reflected to the very world that it was supposed to evangelize. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to have the reputation of a church that has Jesus on the title or worshipers of Jesus out front, but yet our response and our reputation was that we spearhead ungodly practices? How many of you want to be the church of hypocrisy? So that's what Paul's writing to Timothy about. He's saying that the thing that you say you stand for is not it. And so his charge to Timothy is to refer back to his own example in his life and to take Timothy and to encourage him to ground his very church in the scriptures, which in turn would change these ungodly practices and begin to form godly practices. So 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul wrote it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, that all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. Here, the scripture is inspired by God, and it says that it's profitable in many ways, and we're going to talk about each of those ways today. But we have to accept something. We have to accept, initially, like James said, looking into the mirror, we don't see the reflection of God. We see our natural state and the opposite of God. We have to accept the words of Isaiah 55. He said, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are far higher than mine. So our natural inclination, first point I want you to write down, our natural inclination is not his. Our natural inclination just isn't his. This text in 2 Timothy, uh, your version, your scripture, when you read it, study at home, might read, all scripture is God-breathed. And I love that. Inspired by God is, is great, but God-breathed takes it to another level. In Genesis, it says that God spoke everything that we see into existence. And then he spoke as he created man in his image, he breathed into him life. That he breathed into him life. That Adam's simultaneous inhale was the exhale of God. And that he breathed over this text, inspiring it to give us instruction that we'd understand that it'd be living and breathing, that it would not become an old ancient document that would be active and living for us today, for our children's children in the future, as much as it was for those who have gone before us. So it is spoken and inspired as a word of instruction from God for us, we, his people, his servants, and we have to listen to it. We have to recognize that his ways aren't our ways, so we have to take the instruction that God gives us and we begin to apply it. It's not solely dogmatic or legalistic. That's not it. But like children learning from our Father. Because the Scriptures tell us in John 15 that he chastens those he loves. He says it again in Hebrews 12 that he chastens those he loves. How many of you have ever had to correct your children from making a mistake that was harmful for them? And you taught them the right way because you loved them. And you did not want them to harm themselves. 
This was the picture in Eden. You can eat of any tree out here. Have fun. But stay away from the one thing that's harmful for you. And how do we know that we have a rebellious tendency and our inclination isn't his? How do we know that? Because what could we not stop thinking about? Don't touch the stove. What do I want? Don't tell me what to do. Right? You know, what kind of God is that he'd withhold from me? Don't tell me what to do. But here's the thing. We have to recognize what the scripture actually says about the truth of who he is. That God didn't desire to withhold from us. He desired to protect us. Desired to love us. That we'd stay in harmony with him. In fact, Jesus came and said, I came to give life and life more abundant. I came that you'd understand what life was actually about. That you would actually understand what it means to flourish in this life. See, our ways are sinful. They're selfish. And in a broken world, they lead to death. He alone leads to life. And his words alone lead to true purpose, true meaning, and true fulfillment. But the concept, I want to I say this. I think it's important because I, I get it. I accept it. The concept of becoming more like Christ is not difficult to comprehend. I think we all get that, right? The reality is it's incredibly difficult to do. These authors detail the struggle of every person just because and before i read from these several authors in the scriptures i want to say it's just because we come we we come to jesus and we come to him for salvation doesn't mean that all of a sudden the the whining of our flesh stops when you have historically and over years trained your flesh that when it wants something you give it to it and that started from when you came out of the womb when you train your flesh repeatedly like that, the moment you come to Jesus, that doesn't stop. In fact, I would dare say, as a distraction, the enemy only allows that to become louder. And we have to, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciples unless you daily take up take your cross and follow me. You crucify that flesh. You turn your back on your way and your will and you accept mine. Incredibly easy to comprehend. How easy is it to do? Exactly. So, agreeing with the biblical authors before us, the apostle loved, John wrote it like this in John 3 of John the Baptist. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. Isaiah 64, Isaiah said it like this, the prophet, all of us have become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like the leaf. Paul wrote it like this in Romans 7, that for I know the good Nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. And for the desire to do good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Anyone relate to what Paul is saying here? John the Baptist, even the prophet Isaiah. We are told throughout Scripture the reality of this. And given the example after example to affirm said truth of the Bible in our lives. And so this is, this is why he said the, the Bible is profitable. The Bible profits us in rebuke. That's your next point. It profits us in rebuke. Now, I know rebuke is not something that we typically say as if it is beneficial, but let me define rebuke for you. Let me give it to you so you can understand and we can begin to look at why it's good for us. Rebuke is defined as express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or their actions. When you look into the mirror early in the morning without brushing your teeth, without deodorant, without shower, 
I want you to get the image of that person and go, in your mind, go, man, please take a shower. You know, please wash your face. Like, this is the love. We cannot fix what we are not aware of. And God reveals to us our need for him when we look into the scriptures and see who he is. Simultaneously, who we are not. Whether it be that we look into the scriptures knowing, knowing that we are desperate sinners in need of a God and asking and begging him to come. Or, listen, it doesn't change your need any less or more. Or you look into the scriptures and you've become a little bit um, uh, comfortable in the religious practice. Maybe you were born in the moment uh, you were born into the church. You, you've never not known church. You've always been in church. Here's the thing. I want, to con- I want to share with you my concern. Maybe you're convinced that you're okay. And in that convincing... Like the whitewashed tombs that Jesus accused the Pharisees of, because they had actions that they practiced religiously in ritual and all the time, but their hearts were far from him, we all have an inclination to hold and turn to something in our lives before we turn to Jesus. Amen? Often it's more immediate, but we are deceived to believe that it's more tangible, and often We're not told how damaging and deadly it actually is. We must realize that if we are in Christ, the old life was still child of wrath. And it's hard to break old habits. Especially when you're dangerous because you know enough. Maybe you were born in the church and you were blessed to be able to be brought up in the church. But maybe you know a friend, not you who was also born and raised in the church, who knows enough to be dangerous, who doesn't practice the ways of God, but can recite things for you because they revert to their old ways. They are terrifying to me. In fact, they are who he writes about at the beginning of chapter 3 in 2 Timothy. Let me read it for you. It says, but you know this, hard times will come in the last days for people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, who does that sound like? Anyone say that sounds like our world today? Anyone agree that sounds like the world today? Yeah. Here's what he says in the next statement that's really important. Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. I believe if we, if we took this text and we held it up like a big mirror to the world, I think the mirror would reveal to the world exactly what we just read. That it's selfish, it's about money, it's about itself. Because in a world where the culture is all about you, when you have marketing campaigns that say, just do it. Whatever feels good, do it. It's all about you. Have it what? We are in a culture that just continues to pervade that message. And so if we show them in a mirror who they are, I think that they'll see these things. I think that they'll see these things. But here's the deal. What would the church see? You see, what would Jesus' church see? If we revealed in a mirror ourselves, 
Because this text right here, this text in 2 Timothy 3 was not actually written to the world. Jesus already expected that of them. This text says, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. Why would the world hold to a form of godliness? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Why would a lost person try to act saved, act like a Christian? It wouldn't. Who would? So he says, avoid these people. He's talking about the very godless leaders who were dangerous because they knew a lot of stuff and they were influential and they knew just enough to be incredibly dangerous to the church that they were leading and the culture around them because they were still in it for themselves. They were boastful. They were proud. They were lovers of money. They were demeaning. They were ungrateful and holy, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control. This is an intense and descriptive version, but it's true just the same. Hello? And he says that we, we have to recognize this is the old life that is in us, and this is the flesh that winds and, and beckons your attention and my attention and what has to be put down every time. What has happened in the church at Ephesus is it's not being put down. So Paul looks at Timothy and says, remember the example I gave you. And how it is about laying down your life. I need you to lay down your life and lay down your fear. I need you to go in there and fight with the word. I need you to go in and rightly divide the word and start to challenge these leaders of influence to turn their hearts back to him. Be obedient and repent. Listen. Be teachable. In 1 John 8, he says, says, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. For those that think we're okay. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteous. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And listen, his word is not in us. Maybe, maybe you and I are not like at the place where we say, well, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm good. But maybe we say it a little more like this. I'm not perfect. I mean, who's that? I mean, we don't, can't. The word doesn't even expect perfection. I know the word. It doesn't say that. We wouldn't need Jesus. I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not that guy. I'm not that gal. Okay? Do you, you, know what I'm saying? you just said you're okay. I'm not perfect, but I'm not them. You just said, I just said that I'm okay. And I make him a liar, saying, I've not sinned, and his word is not in me. I deceive myself. In fact, let me take it a step further. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. The most dangerous person is the one who doesn't hear all in that verse. That as the apostate leaders in Ephesus did during Timothy's day, who were highly religious and highly educated and thus thought themselves okay, they thought they had no need for change. Though God was clearly trying to reveal their error of their ways by sending the counsel from Paul and by sending the confrontation from Timothy, they were unwilling to yield to God's revelation and change their exposed sinful reflection. They thought themselves fine. And I got to tell you, these are the scariest people, the scariest time of response. From these, he think they're fine and unteachable. He said, avoid. 
Because we are all, every one of us that excludes no one, we are all flawed humanity, knowing that we are flawed is the first step to revelation, which leads to salvation and leads to the trusting of God's word to guide us through all truth. Even when his word does not allow for us, listen, even when his word does not allow for our agreeing with our own preferences. When, how many of you have ever read the scriptures and it didn't agree with your agenda? Like every time, okay? And so the reason we desire to grow by any measure this year, but I'm putting 20% is so that we remember this. We remember that my, I'm not trying to just sidestep. It is incredibly easy to comprehend, incredibly difficult to do. I just need to grow in this, and I seek to grow by an intentional measure. Putting down 20% of listening to my own self. How many of you are pretty convincing if you listen to yourself? Your own flesh whining really loud. 20% of putting that aside and 20 more percent of preaching to myself by opening the Bible. Allowing it to disagree with my agenda and allowing me to join him. Here's the thing. I had a friend in college and my friend in college had a, uh, uh, his dad had a business his entire life. His business was paving parking lots. You know, those, those things don't just pave themselves, right? So he paved parking lots. That was his job and he would stripe them. And when you're going to stripe a parking lot, that's done well into the wee hours of the night. Why? Because no one's there. So he had Walmart contracts, Publix contracts, Kroger contracts. He's doing massive strip mall parking lots. And the way that it works, my, my college friend taught me about this. He, there's a machine that they use. And that machine, you literally drive it, and it stripes these parking lots. But in order for it to be striped you know, level, you have to use this, like, uh, this, this machine that shoots a string and it shoots it straight. And so you get on that line and you just pave it. Everyone follow? And that way you can finish the job accurately and you, you're paving, you're straightening that line, shooting that line every time you stripe a line. Well, uh, my, it was college time and my, my friend had been hired by his dad to go and do a parking lot and his dad was getting older and he was hoping to give the business to his son when he graduated at some point. So he asked him to kind of go oversee a project one night. So my friend left college, went and he's overseeing a project and they striped a Walmart. He got all the way to the end, got all the way done. And, uh, and they had done, they, they're putting all the equipment away, put the, the line away, put it away. But they noticed something. They forgot to strike the entrance. The very entrance where they come in with the two double yellow lines keeping traffic flowing in one direction or not, they forgot to do that. And all the guys are waiting around. I mean, it's like wee hours of the morning. And, uh, and my, my, my friend is serving as the overseer, supervisor. So he goes, i tell you what, here's the thing, man. I've been driving this machine since I was like 12. I'm, I'll just do it. Well, you, we just put the line away. I don't need the line. I got it. Jumps on the machine. He said, I was looking from the start, driving back into the middle of the parking lot. And man, I was making just minor adjustments, like small adjustments for the, for the hills and the turns. And I could, I'm just barely tweaking it. And I, I didn't look back. I just kept going, kept my eyes ahead like my dad had taught me. And there I was. And I knew this machine. I was good. I was okay with this machine. We were, like became one being. And I just knew when I turned around, I was going to see a pristine line. The guys in the back are on the ground rolling because it is this. <laughs> the whole way through that parking lot. And they're mad now because they're thinking they're going to have to stay later and they're going to have to restrike this parking lot or come back tomorrow. 
and he comes running. He's like, look, 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 here's the thing. Just don't call my dad. Whatever you do, don't tell him. Uh, someone take the, the boss out. Do not call my dad. I, I'll, I'll fix it. Before he can even get home, his cell phone's ringing. It's a dad. Were you drinking? Like, what, what were you thinking? Like, how did that happen? Couldn't escape it, couldn't get away from it, right? My friend thought that he was okay because he had plenty of experience doing that. But see, the, the truth is, he was never going to be effective without his plumb line. A plumb line, if you've never used, used it or thought, how many of you have ever tried to hang a picture without a level? Hang a picture, and you even have a, a, a second set of eyes come in. Says, Does that look straight? Yeah, it looks straight to me. And then you put a level on it, and it's like, what? You know what I'm talking about? We can deceive ourselves pretty quickly. A plumb line looks kind of like this, okay? You imagine a line, and surveyors use them. Um, anyone in engineering would use one. You drop a line like this, and it gives you ability vertically and horizontally to find what's straight, much like my friend driving the ship. And at the... At the bottom is a, they call it a plumb line because there's a plumb bulb. It's a bulb, a weight that's shaped kind of like a plumb, and it keeps that line straight. And now when we utilize it, we know how to peer. We're not veering left or right, and we're, not, we're peering to make a straight line and a straight course of action by looking through said plumb line. The word is our plumb line. The scriptures are our plumb line. We peer at life and our steps and our direction through it that we would do it precisely in his desires, not because in our arrogance we think we've got it or we're okay, but we go back to it continually so that we know for sure we are in step with him. Understand? So, the Bible profits us in training. And I want to go through the last of this pretty quickly. We have to be willing to trust, if, if we are going to practice the ways of Jesus, we have to trust the words of Jesus. We can't trust the opinions of others to practice his ways. That's going to get us here. So, prophets us in training, in correction. Correction is defined as this, a change that rectifies an error or an inaccuracy. Uh, it's like a parent correcting a child that they love because they don't want them to lead to danger. God loves us, and so he chastens those he loves. This is what it means to be taught a new way or a new walk. It's one thing to see our need for a new way. It's altogether different to begin to practice a new way. It's one thing to be able to recognize and, and have that rebuke show us our reflection in the image and, and to recognize, I need to change. But it's altogether different. It is correction that, that said, okay, so I see I need to make it is to make a step towards said change and to start to practice new things. It isn't okay to simply expose the problem. Correction requires teaching and training in a new practice. And that's what it's also profit to do. The Bible profits us in teaching and in training. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way that they will go. And when they're older, they will not what? depart from it. That doesn't mean just take your kid to church. What that means is teach them who God has made them to be and how they reflect his image. And the only way they're going to commune with him is to get into the, the gift, the love letter that reveals who he is to them and how they're to respond to their lover of their soul, their, their groom as his bride. 
John 13, we discovered last week, it says that when he finished washing their feet, he put on clothes, turned his place, and asked, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked. You call me teacher and Lord, and you rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also wash another's feet. I have set an example that you are to do for others. I have set an example that you should do and do it as I have done for you. Verily, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Do you hear a theme? As we discussed last week, these men didn't truly understand the implications of Jesus' object lesson here in this passage. They also didn't know the persecution that awaited them, certainly as soon as Jesus is betrayed. As soon as they leave these doors, this is like the last peaceful moment they're going to have with him. And then darkest uncertainty is coming, and it leads Peter to deny Jesus three times and the, the disciples of Jesus to scatter as if to save their own skin. You're always going to have the tendency to want to save your own skin. They were headed into imminent danger, and they succumbed. How many of you have ever succumbed to save your own skin? Here's the thing. This is the love of God. He's the God of a million chances. He's gracious. In John 21, Jesus actually comes to Peter, and he restores Peter, sets him up to become one of the most famous preachers, if not the most famous preacher of all the New Testament and its times to follow. And he asks him how much he loves him. He asked him three times specifically, one for every time that he denied him to restore him. He shows him in practice how much he needs him. In fact, in John 21, what I love is that Peter, when he ran away after humbly and in humiliation denying Jesus, his Lord, his Savior, he went back to fishing. And in John 21, that chapter opens with the fact that Peter can't even catch fish without Jesus. Throw it over the other side of the boat. And he hauls in fish that he can't even put in the boat because it will break the nets. You see, it profits us in correction and training and uh, teaching unto righteous, but it does so to complete us and to equip us. This is to say that we're always learning, that we're always developing that we're always dependent on him on this side of eternity. How many of you know you need him? We just prayed for it a moment ago. Some people in this room recognize that. May, and we prayed for our friend, but maybe you today need him just as much. Today we have to be perpetually teachable. We have to recognize our own tendencies, our own inclinations aren't his. We are more likely to do this than we are to follow a straight line. And all he desired is to reveal to us a straight line so that we would follow we're to be humble, discover our natural tendencies and their opposition to his tendencies. How many of you recognize that your natural tendencies oppose his? Again, when you open the word, how many of you have ever had your agenda revealed and how counter it is to what he's trying to do? To walk in the ways of Jesus is to literally live counter to culture. These apostate leaders that we read about in, in the church of Ephesus, in this letter to Timothy, they were unwilling to let go of their own agenda. In fact, they made that primary and they held it up. We have to put it down in order to truly follow Jesus and to practice his ways and lead others to do the same. They believed their own hype, thus deceived themselves, thinking they were okay. Will we deceive ourselves thinking today that we are okay? 
I want to leave us with a couple questions. And I want, to, I want to leave you with one more challenge. I said it last week, and I want to encourage us today. God gives grace to the humble, and he resists the proud. How many of you want to be on the, the end of the receiving end of God's stiff arm? I don't. So the question is, are you teachable? And if inside you immediately go, yeah, just ask anybody. I'm like the most teachable person in here. Super humble. I'm the best at it. Are the scriptures your authoritative instruction and your plumb line? Do you allow them to lead and guide you? If not, I need to ask, what is? And can any other source outside of him, any source out here in a selfish and broken world, truly be trusted when anything other than the, what God has spoken to us feeds our flesh? Are you and I willing today, are we willing to put God's plan over our preferences? Are you willing to put his design over your desires? A lot easier to say and comprehend than to do. If his word is our standard, our plumb line, our level, our blueprint that we all come back to in order to understand his character and to understand what he desires and move through life, then we can't do that. We can't measure our choices without peering into it and pouring over it repeatedly, learning more about who he is and just how much he loves us. It's more than just singing at it. It's embracing it. Will we today be in, uh, guided by the infallible word of God which contains no error? Or will we continue as flawed humanity to trust flawed humanity which will be, listen, forever errant? We don't want to be a church that Paul describes at the beginning of this chapter. I don't. I don't want to be a part of a church that Jesus has to rebuke through the hand of another pastor. I don't want to be the one that's so proud that receives a stiff arm. But rather, I desire to be a part of a church, and I hope that we desire to be a church that, that Paul instructs Timothy to go and fight for. His disciple at Ephesus, his pastor, the one that's biblically centered. And, and Timothy had, had to be strong enough to go in and let the people know that they were in fact wrong. How many of you like having that confrontational conversation? How many of you just love confrontation? Here it is. I don't want to be a church that displeases Jesus that he has to rebuke. I want to be the church. And, and by the way, that through the hand of Paul tells Timothy and others to avoid such people. I want to be a people that lift others' needs so much and we're so humble and teachable and so submitted to Jesus that when people come, we don't point to ourselves, we simply point to him. And this morning, if you're like me, I can't do that apart from the scriptures. This is why we as a church are biblically centered. So Father, this morning as we come, we yield to you. We don't desire to pervade our opinions or our take or God... Um, our thoughts on the matter. God, we desire to pervade your truth in that alone, and we desire to yield to it. We don't desire to find our way anymore. We desire to turn our plans into your plans. We desire to take our desires and, and yield them to your design and let you have your way, our preferences aside. So, Father, this morning as we respond, your church, to this word and your reminder to us, I beg that you'd have your way right now by the power of your spirit to stir within my heart, stir within the hearts of my brothers and sisters as your bride. I pray 
Jesus, our groom, our God, our Lord, you'd be pleased by the response of your people, your children, right now. It's in your name I ask. Amen.